Hello, and welcome back to Newfound Pod, a bite-sized podcast about Newfoundland. I'm your host, Debbie Wiseman. No theme music this week because this is my second time recording. I accidentally deleted the file, and I'm recording again right now. This is episode four, the tidal wave of 1929. On November 18th, 1929, an earthquake with a magnitude of 7.2 occurred on the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, about 400 kilometers offshore. It was felt as far away as New York City and Montreal. Newfoundland itself did not have a seismograph or tide gauge, which could have warned of the tsunami. Earthquakes are so rare in Newfoundland that people were very frightened and not sure what to think when furniture shook and dishes came crashing off of shelves. The tremors were reported to have lasted five minutes. Some people thought it might have been an explosion nearby, but they didn't know the worst was yet to come. The earthquake triggered a huge underwater landslide, which sent waves that reached the coast of Newfoundland going 40 kilometers per hour. Residents noticed the sea level rapidly fall well below what they were used to, with St. Lawrence Bay, normally around 10 meters deep, empty to the degree that boats toppled over. Soon after, they were hit by three consecutive waves, reaching heights of 3 to 7 meters in some places and as high as 27 meters in the narrower bays. The waves flooded dozens of communities and swept homes and people out to sea. In the aftermath, 27 people lost their lives, hundreds of people lost their homes, and everything they owned. Entire communities were gone. Since it happened in the evening when people were awake and about, the loss of life, though tragic in itself, could have been much higher. People were able to flee their homes for higher ground, but could only watch as the waters ravaged their communities. In the end, the waves themselves lasted for only 30 minutes, and the sea level took a further two hours to recede back to normal levels. I imagine it felt much longer to those survivors, who went about looking through the rubble for anyone else who may have survived. People got in the remaining boats to search for survivors who may be hanging on to debris or trapped in homes still floating nearby. A man who was swept out to sea swam towards a house, only to find out that it was his own home. The house was later towed back to shore and replaced on its foundations. A kerosene lamp burning in the second floor window of one home led them to a sleeping baby whose whole family had been drowned downstairs. Adding to the already tragic events was the fact that a recent storm had severed the only telegraph line linking the Buren Peninsula with the rest of the island. The tsunami had also destroyed all landlines linking the communities. Back in St. John's, with limited communications, they only received word of minor damage at Placentia. A report from Long Harbor Placentia Bay states that the shocks were felt at 6 o'clock and again at 10. Following the disturbance, a tidal wave rushed in, completely carrying away 76 feet of roadway and causing considerable damage to fishing rooms and stages. So at that point, they thought that that was the extent of the damage. People in the communities wrote letters to family in St. John's to let them know what happened and to send help immediately. It was their best form of communication at the time. In the meantime, people made do with what they had. In Taylor's Bay, five of 17 houses remained and the survivors crowded into those houses. The night of the tsunami brought a winter storm with sleet and snow, adding to the already desperate situation. According to Father James Miller, a parish priest from Buren, The fishermen were most heroic, but the least suspected. 
as they went quietly about searching the debris for survivors throughout the night. Finally, help would arrive on the morning of November 21st. The SS Porsche made a scheduled stop at Buren Harbor. The Porsche immediately sent a wireless message to St. John's describing the situation on the Buren Peninsula. The ship's captain, Westbury Keene, later wrote to the Evening Telegram. Imagine our wonder and surprise on turning the point of the channel to be met by a large store drifting slowly along the shore of Seaward. Then a short distance, another store or a dwelling house, until nine buildings were counted, strewn along the shore before the harbour was reached. On reaching the harbour, even a worse spectacle greeted the eyes. Here's a brief excerpt from the November 27, 1929 account from the Honourable Dr. Mosdell aboard the Meagle, as reported in St. John's Daily News. Dwelling houses were reduced to a condition reminiscent of wartime description of the effects of heavy shell fire. Former sites of gardens and meadows now thickly strewn with boulders, some of them as large as casks, thrown upon the shore by the devastating force of the tidal wave. Motorboats, stages, wharfs, piers lifted bodily and thrown far inland in heaps of ruins. Lord's Cove and Lemeline visited by the relief expedition yesterday. Here, dozens of houses, stores, and stages were found thrown bodily into the pond at the head of the harbors, huddled together in one heap of destruction. Another report said that a store, 9 by 17 meters, was moved 60 meters inland and deposited in a meadow, with all its stock left intact. From the Newfoundland Heritage Site When news of the disaster finally did reach St. John's on November 21st, the government and public were quick to respond. A relief ship arrived at the Buren Peninsula the following day, carrying medical equipment, food, clothes, and other supplies. Public donations poured in from across the country, and within weeks amounted to $250,000. Canada, the United States, and Britain also gave money and aid. Despite these efforts, the start of the Great Depression in 1929 and the collapse of the cod fishery in the early 1930s further damaged the Buren Peninsula's weakened economy. It was not until the 1940s that many communities were able to fully recover, while others could not recover at all. There's also the story of Nurse Dorothy Cherry of Lameline. Knowing that people would need medical aid and unsure of how long it would take to get to the affected areas, traveled tirelessly by horseback and then on foot to the numerous communities between her home village and Buren to treat the sick and injured. Total property losses were estimated at more than $1 million in 1929 dollars, so that's about $20 million in today's dollars. The lives lost were 28 people, including a girl who died in 1933 after never recovering from her injuries. I'll have a list on the blog of the names of the people lost in this tragedy. I'll also have a link to a letter written from a survivor to his brother about the devastation. To end this week, I'm going to read some first-hand accounts from people who survived the tsunami. These stories come from a booklet put out by the Seniors Resource Center of Newfoundland to encourage literacy among seniors. So the first story is from Pearl Brushett Hatfield. Pearl Brushett lived at Kelly's Cove, Buren Island, when the tidal wave of 1929 struck. She was five years old when a wave took her house out to sea. Her mother, Carrie Brushett, and five children were in the house. It was a ride they would never forget. The first wave took our house from Kelly's Cove Beach over to Bartlett's Island. It grounded there. My sister Lillian and I were in the same bed. She had an earache. Mother warmed up a plate and put it under her ear in order to get relief. 
Lillian still has the old plate. My older sister Lottie said to Mom, Are you going to wake up Lil and Pearl? Mom said yes, and she came and woke us up. The first thing I remember after they woke us up was looking out the window. All the flakes and all the stages were down in the harbor. The harbor was all debris, I remember that. Then the second wave came and took us back to the beach. Not exactly where it came from, but near. That's when Mr. Holland and his wife Beatrice came down and got us out through the parlor window. The window pane was 12 by 24 inches. That's what we all went out through, that pane of glass. Mom caught her wrist when she broke out the glass. My sister Lottie jumped out and got a big scar on her right forearm. I don't remember being scared. Mom was there, so naturally we figured Mom was going to look after us. Lottie and Mom went to Miss Hollett's house and got their cuts bandaged. Years later, Mom still had pieces of glass coming out of her wrist. Then we took off and went higher on the hill, which they called the Humpus Head, but don't ask me how it was spelled. I remember the next day. I know it snowed because I remember Fred. He didn't have any clothes to wear. I could see him so plain in this child's dress. We were down helping pick up some of the debris and found some of the girls' dresses. I guess they were from the neighbor's children. Our house didn't break up. It was towed in and moored off in Ship Cove by the old schooner Daisy. Even the old cat stayed in the house. It got really wild. When I tried to get it out of the house, it jumped out of the window and over someone's head and swam ashore. We never saw it after. <laughs> it probably just went wild. <laughs> Dad was down in the woods cutting wood for the winter. I think it was a couple of days before he heard. I remember him telling me their boats all went dry, down there in the bay where they were. Dad towed the house back to Kelly's Cove. We used to use it for a fish store, where we stored the salt fish. I had nightmares for a long time after. In my dreams, I was always going up a hill, and the water was only a few feet behind me. For years after, I was traumatized, I guess. After the tidal wave, Mother always had a roaring sound in her head like the sea. She never ever got rid of that. She lived until she was 75, and she always heard that noise. I imagine she was in shock, and she was never treated for it. You know, floating around with five children in the house, I guess you would be in shock too. This account is from Mary Walsh McKenna. I went over to St. Pierre when I was 13, and I worked at a hotel. Can you imagine having a job at 13 at a hotel? A woman had three children for me to take care of. I used to go back to Lord's Cove in May because my father needed my help. His name was Jim Walsh. I would work with him during the summer, and I was there late in the fall when the tidal wave came in. I was coming home from the store when I felt the earthquake. I was holding a package in my father's wallet. I was just shaking because there was nothing to hold on to. Your whole body shakes, especially your knees, when you're standing still. You don't know if you should move or not. It was November. The ground could have had a little frost in it, but I doubt it, and I was standing there shaking like everyone else. When I got home, my father said to me, What in the heck is going on? Everything was shaking in here. I went to look in the pantry, and there were a couple of cups down on the floor. Off every kitchen in Newfoundland, in the old houses, there's a little cupboard there with dishes in it. I was in the front door when I saw the harbor. I still had my coat on. I called to father. I said, Pop, there's no water in the cove. It's all rocks. He said, what? And I repeated it. I said, come and see. That's when he got up and looked out. He stayed staring at the dry harbor. Then we saw the wave coming. People were outdoors, hollering to everybody else. That was the way he got in touch, one with the other. So they all came out and saw it. Then we saw the water coming. 
Everybody started to run, because it wasn't like it was coming in through the cove. It was like it was coming from the sky. That's how high the wave was, but it got smaller as it came in. In Newfoundland years ago, especially the Roman Catholics, they always died with a candle in their hands. Did you know that? See, my mother was sick for a long time, and when she died, somebody had to hold the candle. That was the church's rules. It was one of those old-fashioned candles. So anyway, it wasn't all burned away. There was quite a bit of that candle left at the time she died, so my father kept it. I was still in the door when we saw the wave coming. He was in the hall. He left me and ran upstairs and grabbed the candle, jumped in his boots and went out to the bank where the capstan was, and he struck it down in a piece of chain. He lit the candle, and the candle was still going after the third wave. He only took it out of there when he thought the waves had stopped. Everybody else lost their stages, dories, their skiffs, everything. Ours was still there. So, of course, that was quite a thing, people coming and looking at that. We never lost anything. The water never came up, never came anywhere near there. Father believed it was because of the candle. The next story comes from Marion Kelly. Marion Kelly was 13 years old when the tidal wave hit. It happened on a Monday, a beautiful day for washing clothes. She was living at Kelly's Cove near Buren. I was at a woman's house to write a letter for her. She was an old woman. She was writing her daughter, in Boston, I believe. She couldn't write, so I was writing it for her. After the shock, I wanted to go home. We didn't know what to think, really. I didn't stay. If I didn't go when I did, I would have been caught in the wave going down around the shore on the way home. So I don't know. I think all our lives are planned, don't you? Sometime after the shock, I was at the kitchen table working by the light of a kerosene lamp. I was still in my school clothes, a navy skirt and white blouse. That was later, a couple of hours after the shock. I was doing my homework. I was doing English. You know the sentence I was doing? If you do not leave the house, I will send for the policeman with that fine. Of course, we didn't expect a tidal wave. We didn't know anything about it, really. It came around 7 o'clock. They say that the harbor dried out. Whether it did or not, I really don't know, but that's what people said. Then it came back in. Well, you could hear the sea coming in. It was roaring. Of course, we all ran out in the air to see what was going on. The sea was just like a mountain coming, but slowly. That's what it seemed like to me. Right straight, there were three waves. My little brother and sister were in the doorway. I ran and got him and ran behind the house and jumped the fence. I really don't know how high. When I got over the fence, the water was coming underneath it. I don't know how I did it, because Elroy was biggish. He didn't remember anything, though. He never did. He was only three and a half. Mom came out in the yard. I don't know if she went back in the house or not. I never knew. Mother and my little sister didn't make it. They never did find my mother Frances or my sister Dorothy. It took everything when it came. Later, the schooner Daisy was in here at the government wharf. The Daisy went out looking. She towed in a house, but it was not ours. In Kelly's Cove, three or four houses washed out. Mrs. Carrie Brushett and her five children were in one. And that's the story we heard. The very first story. The first wave came and took the house and took it out to sea and they were all in it. The second wave came and brought it back and put it on the beach. Then they all got out before the third wave came and took the house right out to sea. That's the house the Daisy towed in. My other brother Kurt was at my aunt's house at the time. I raised them up, the two boys, Elroy and Kurt. Father was down in the woods. We had a big schooner and he was going down getting wood for the winter. He didn't know a thing about it until he got home a week later. 
final story comes from Louise Emberly Hollett. She was 23 years old when the tidal wave hit her town of Great Buren on Great Buren Island. Louise was in the kitchen enjoying the smells from the oven when she heard a noise. I was in the house, Mrs. Hollett recalls. It was about five o'clock. We were getting supper. We had a lady to come over and visit us that day, and Mom was baking apple dumplings. That's what she had in the oven, apple dumplings. I don't know what else we were going to have, but I know that we were going to have these, maybe for dessert or something. I heard this noise, and I thought it was the stove. We ran out by the door, and you could feel the earth shaking under your feet. After supper, Louise made her way up to the telegraph office. Up and away from the beach, there was a road called the High Road, but she took the route down by the water. The harbor was to her left as she walked. I went over to hear the news, and when I was going over, the harbor went right dry. Derby's boat was there, and she was high and dry at the wharf. In the post office, they used to have telegraphy. Mrs. Helen Derby was the telegraph operator, and she had a big news book. The news would come, and she would write it all out and then put it out in the lobby. Sometimes she would read it for the crowd of men standing around. After the earthquake, they came over from Shalloway. That's another island. They had to come over footbridges to get there. They came over to hear the news and see what was happening. I wasn't over there very long, only a few minutes, when I heard the big rush and the water all rushed in. Luckily, the water did not come up to where Louise was standing. Everybody went up on higher ground, and we were scared stiff. The funny thing was, we didn't know what a tidal wave was. We were quite ignorant of what was happening. We thought the place was sinking or something. There was a lighthouse keeper up there, from somewhere in England. Sidney Hussey was his name. He told us what was happening. You know, when there's an earthquake, there's usually a tidal wave if it's out in the ocean. Seeing the damage on the beach, the visitors from Shalloway became nervous. They had good reason to be uneasy. The Shalloway people lived right down on beaches, said Mrs. Hollett. They thought their houses would be gone. They got the ferry boat that was there and tried to go over to see how their families were and see what was gone. Do you know, they couldn't steer the thing at all. There was so much tide. They finally got there, and there was hardly a thing damaged. At the telegraph office, Louise was worried. I was out by the door, looking and listening. Everybody was looking. I didn't know what to do. My mother was home, and we lived down near the water. I went home by way of the high road and called out to her. She and this other woman came up over the hill. On the slope, the whole community gathered to watch. Mr. E. M. Hollett had a store where he used to keep lumber and other things. He could hear all the lumber tumbling out of his store as the high tide took all his wharves out to sea. Some of the lumber lodged on the bank and in the land wash. All night long we could hear the men trying to salvage it and throw it up on high land. Two or three days after the tidal wave, Louise's father sailed into Great Buren. My father was Joseph Emberley. He and another man went down to Swift Current cutting wood because hardly anybody lived there then. The other man had one of those little jackboats. That evening they noticed that the tide was pretty high and swirling. The boat used to spin around, but he didn't know what was causing it. He didn't know anything about what was happening. And when they were coming home, they met the wreckage of things and found out it was the tidal wave. Okay, and that's it for me for another week. I have no idea what my episode will be about next week. I have tons of ideas. I have a whole notebook full of ideas, but I just have to pick one. Remember to follow me on social media. I'm NewfoundPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The site is NewfoundPod.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. It would mean so much to me.
Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.